This is the No Dama Podcast. I'm Brian Hogan, and today I'm joined by Key Jeffries, tech lead at Loki, a private communications and transaction platform, and Key is joining me from Melbourne. Thank you very much for taking time out of your day. Hey, Brian. Uh, nice to be here with you and your audience. To start, Key, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Uh, so my name's Key. I'm working at the Loki project. I'm a tech, the tech lead on Loki. So what that kind of entails is uh, doing a lot of research. So uh, reading papers, uh, digesting them, seeing what things we can apply to Loki from those papers. Um, more generally, just managing the development team, making sure we're on time, um, our releases come out. Um, it's kind of an overarching role. There's a lot of things that come into it. Uh, because you're a small company, you also need to handle you know, financial stuff and regulations and kind of navigate yourself uh, through the landscape of, uh, of having a blockchain company, which is a, a very interesting thing, uh, especially when the regulatory environment isn't so clear. So yeah, that's kind of a, a, an over-encompassing uh, definition of what my role is. And you are a programmer by education or by trade? So I'm a programmer by education. So I did computer science at Monash University, but uh, you know, as as the as some of the greats, I dropped out halfway through. I don't know if I'm gonna end up being at, uh, as good as you know Zuckerberg or Bill Gates, but um, the typical uh, drop out and start a company halfway through your computer science degree is what I did. Uh, so my programming is, is okay, but uh, not nearly as good as some of the, some of the developers that we have on our team. How big a team do you have? Uh, so in terms of developers, we're probably coming up to 10 full-time developers. And then the other parts of the team, uh, like, you know, finance and legal and all of that side, that's probably getting up to seven or eight people. So I think we'll be pushing over 20 people soon at Logi. Not a small company anymore. So let's maybe wind back and tell me what Loki is. So Loki, in its most simplest form, is a way to communicate on the internet privately. Um, so we saw a problem with uh, the internet and the current infrastructure is that it, it has a lot of centralization. Um, and those central points tend to be points where you're getting monitored a lot. Um, so we wanted to break this down uh, and build what's called an overlay network, which is essentially a network on top of a network. So uh, Loki at its at its core is a network of nodes on top of the internet, uh, which allows you to communicate through these kind of encrypted tunnels. Um, it's very similar to uh, Tor, if your viewers have ever heard of it or if you've heard of it, um, except it offers some significant advantages over, over Tor in the way that it actually routes data. But at, at its core, the most simplest thing is that Loki allows people to communicate over the internet privately, and we have some applications as well um, that allow you to message people and send money privately as well. So it's primarily communications and uh, financial transactions. Well, it's interesting because we actually started more as a transactional platform. So the idea was that you could send money to people privately. Um, and then we had this idea of, okay, we could introduce an overlay network into this and we could actually have this whole layer of private communications as well. And that's kind of what we've steered ourselves more and more towards is that this idea of being able to communicate over the internet privately, that's become maybe a more major aspect than just the currency part of it, which is how we initially started. When you say communication, though, we have things like WhatsApp, uh, Telegram, Signal, and probably a few others I don't know about. Are you offering something significantly different? 
Those are all messenger messenger services. Um, the problem with those messenger services is they all rely on a centralized server infrastructure. So Signal runs its own servers and WhatsApp owns its run, or runs its own servers. Uh, so Loki is fundamentally different from this. When you want to send a message on what we call Loki Messenger, which is an application that runs on top of this overlay network that we've built, you never actually store your message on a single centralized server. Instead, you choose a random node out of the overlay network that we've built, and you store temporarily on that server uh, a copy of your message. So when your participant who's not online comes online, they can retrieve it from that server. So by distributing out all of the messages across you know, thousands of servers instead of a single server owned by a corporation, you actually get some very desirable security properties. Um, and not just security properties as well, you've also got to think about um, the legislations that you're traversing as well, because not, not all service nodes are run in, say, Australia or the United States or Germany. Um, some of them are run in really you know, weird jurisdictions where they might not be cooperating with particular governments if they were to send them a, you know information request. Um, so it's it's a very different architecture from those centralized applications that you mentioned. There is a place for both of them, absolutely. Um, but what we're really trying to provide is a completely different model. And we'll see how that model goes. I remember at some point, quite a long time back, Skype was a peer-to-peer type network. And then I think it became more centralized. Is there a difference between the Skype peer-to-peer back then and what you're offering? Yeah, so peer-to-peer is kind of... It's a very like it's a very beautiful technology, and what we've seen peer to peer do is change a whole portion of the internet. It hasn't changed everything because the majority of the internet is still this kind of client server architecture, right? But it has changed things like file sharing. For example, BitTorrent is a huge like leap forward in terms of peer to peer file sharing. Um, the problem with peer to peer file sharing is that it's actually probably got worse privacy benefits than the client server architecture. Because in a client server architecture, I've got this server in between. And as long as they're trustful and they don't do anything wrong, then the person who's on the other side of my communications, they won't actually know who I am unless I voluntarily give them the information. They would have to ask the server in the middle, okay, what's the IP address of this person? Whereas if you go directly peer-to-peer, then you're making a direct uh, connection between two IP addresses, right? So immediately the recipient of my communications knows who I am. So if you're trying to, you know, get privacy in the internet, peer-to-peer is not the best way to go about it. It does offer this decentralized model where you never have to trust a single server, uh, but you're always trusting the other end. Gotcha. So you mentioned also uh, money and transactions. Um, Are you sending dollars, euros, bitcoins? Yeah, so... uh, The Loki cryptocurrency is uh, based off the Monero source code. So uh, for those who aren't very familiar with cryptocurrencies, uh, they're a different way to send money, uh, entirely decentralized. So you never have to trust on a central bank, for example, that guarantees uh, your money is going to be worth a certain value. The value is just based on what the market believes the value is. Uh, So like Bitcoin, um, Loki is a virtual currency um, and it's completely decentralized and it's run through you know, by thousands of computers and there's miners there as well. Um, so that's kind of how we get around that. But Monero has some particular properties of privacy that are very different from Bitcoin as well. Um, Bitcoin, when you send a Bitcoin to someone else, you're sending directly to their public address. 
um, and the whole transaction is private for every, uh, public for everyone to see rather. Um, Monero and Loki have this model where uh, even though everything is public on the blockchain, we use types of encryption to obfuscate the links between sender and receiver. The I've had a few guests on in the past, the creators of Hemlas, which was a peer-to-peer messaging, or sorry, excuse me, a messaging, encrypted messaging. I think that product didn't work out. And also Lava Boom, another company that was uh, encrypted email. Um, and I've asked them both this question. I'll ask you as well. Why do we need this privacy? You know, who Who are we hiding from? I think increasingly we're seeing an attack from both sides. So we're seeing both the corporations that we give our data to leaking our data. So this is stuff like Facebook, um, you know, WhatsApp. There's a, there's a couple of, there's been a couple of major security breaches now. Um, Yahoo, uh, where, you know, a, a massive amount of personal data gets stolen and then sold to advertisers or sold to foreign governments. Um, no one really wants their data being used for this, this kind of malicious activities, right? Um, and then the other side of things is the government intervention. We know that in, in lots of countries, although, you know, I live in Australia, um, Australia is not the worst country for privacy. You know, we don't have a totally dictate, dictatorial government, right, which is, you know, cracking down and just killing people left, right and center. Um, and I hope it doesn't get to that. But there are countries in the world where that is the case. And people actually do require communication. And it's not just about them feeling, you know, good and, and happy about no one being able to see their, you know, little mischievous things on the internet. It's actually a life and death situation for them. So Loki is not always about people who are in the West and, you know, maybe aren't under an oppressive regime. It's maybe more focused towards the people who, you know, privacy is actually a serious matter for them. Um, and they're trying to communicate with people outside of the country, maybe, and if the government finds out, well, that could be a serious situation for them. So, you know, it's it's easy to get trapped in a bubble and see everything from the Western perspective, but you know, you've also got to remember that there are there are people out there who have really serious privacy concerns, and, and Loki is also trying to solve uh, the problem for those people too. Yeah, that addresses the, the comment I sometimes get from people: "Yeah, I've got nothing to hide." Well, yeah, you don't. <laughs> Right. But it's also you don't right now. You don't know how things will change. You don't know how some activity that you're currently engaged in could be viewed differently in the future. I totally agree. On a long enough scale, nearly every government will go tyrannical in the end. It's just how long it takes before that happens. Right. Um, and when they have these lists that they've compiled of, you know, oh, this person is into this political view or this person believes this. Well, then, you know, it doesn't take long before those lists get used to start knocking on doors, for example. Well, on that happy note, let's uh, talk a little bit about the technology of how Loki is built. I know you touched on it, but can you give a, an overview? Yeah, so it's very similar to Tor. Um, so what Tor is, is it's uh, a network of volunteer-run nodes. Essentially, what happens is, um, as I said, in the traditional internet, if you want to access a server you would make a direct link between your IP address, which is like your virtual uh, home address kind of thing. Uh, and you would make a direct connection with their server. So now if anyone comes along, either the server is bad in this scenario or a third party comes along and wants to start sniffing, 
they would uh, they would look at your IP address and they would say, oh, okay, that's an interesting IP address. I'm going to either go to an internet service provider or I'm going to ask the government for help here. And the internet service provider can map your IP address directly to your uh, personal details. So when you signed up for your internet, you would have given them your driver's license and your home address and stuff like that. Um, so now either the government or your ISP knows directly that you're communicating with this server. So this is exactly what we want to prevent, right? Because you could be exchanging some personal information here. Uh, you could be exchanging some sensitive, sensitive data between you and the server. And although you can have an encrypted tunnel set up between you and the server, so no middle person can see what you're sending, it's actually the metadata that we're concerned about. So the fact that you contacted the server at you know 9.42 and you were connected for 20 minutes and then you left and then maybe you browsed the next website. Although we can't actually tell what you are sending, we can use this metadata that's uh, all of these connections that you've created over the internet between these times to get a very good idea about what you were doing. Um, so, you know, if, if, to give a really concrete example of this, you know, say I call my doctor um, and then I, I call, a, like I call a, um, a prostitute and then I call my doctor the next day. Well, maybe it's quite likely that I got an STD in that in that time, right? So that's sensitive data that no one would really want any third party to know about. But just by knowing that, you know, I called these people at this particular time, my ISP can uh, make this connection, right? Um, and there was some really scary uh, cases in the US where you had pregnant pregnant mothers um, uh, and Google was analyzing their uh, their search terms and Google was actually able to know that they were pregnant before they actually knew, just based on what their search terms were. So they've they've plotted all of this data out. So essentially, that's what we want to prevent, right? So how do we how do we stop this? So essentially, we get a group of nodes, uh, say you know a couple of hundred nodes, and we put them in the middle of us and this server. So we have this server on one end and then we have us on the other. And instead of going directly to the server, we actually bounce our connection between multiple hops in the middle. So really what the server sees on its end is a connection from one of these random nodes in the group. And what, uh, what my ISP sees on my end is that I've connected to the Loki network or the Tor network. So that's essentially what you're doing. You're creating a network of nodes in the middle for which you bounce your connection through. So you're never actually directly connecting with the server itself. Uh, so the difference between that, so that's kind of what the Tor network does. Now the difference between Loki and the Tor network is that the Tor network is voluntarily run. So all of these nodes in the middle, they're run by vol voluntary operators, people who give up their time and money to do this. Now in the Loki network, these nodes are actually paid. So similar to miners in Bitcoin, uh, the nodes in the Loki network get paid for routing traffic. Uh, so that's kind of the key distinction and difference. When you're talking about nodes, are you talking about dedicated computers here? Or are we talking about uh, users versus, let's say, power users versus my phone? Is there a variety of equipment in this? No, so we're talking about dedicated users. So just like a miner has to buy dedicated hardware to run a Bitcoin mining uh, node, these nodes are going to have to run dedicated hardware to route traffic. Um, that doesn't mean that we're going to sell the hardware. There's a bunch of stuff out there that you can use to route traffic. They're usually called virtual private servers. So you'd set them up in a different country that has really good internet access uh, and they'll route traffic for you as well. 
And then the person, let's say you're the one calling your friend or calling your doctor, are you using your desktop, your phone? What are you? How, what's your? What's the client app? So uh, the client application can be any uh, any application. So we have uh, we have in development. Obviously, this is still in development at the moment. Um, there's a little test net up, so you can kind of test this out yourself. That's desktop only, but the final version will be desktop and mobile application, or and any platform that you you can basically use. So then you're saying clients and nodes, uh, is that it? Or are there other pieces of infrastructure that are, let's say, under your control in some shape or fashion? There's nothing that the Loki network controls that affects the network in any way. It's all it's all run um, by these people who are incentivized monetarily to run these nodes. And, you know, they're, they're incentivized in the same way that Bitcoin miners are incentivized to run Bitcoin miners because they get a percentage of the block reward that is created every two minutes in Loki's case. Well, I know one of the things with uh, my knowledge of Bitcoin and blockchain is, is very slim, but I know that as the as time has gone on, it's become harder and harder to create the coins. So you need more and more CPU. Is that the case with Loki? So it has a similar property um, that I didn't talk about earlier. Uh, what essentially happens is each of these nodes has to hold a certain amount of Loki. So this is uh, to do with what we call a Siebel attack. A Siebel attack is a general concept. The idea is well, it's named after this person called uh, Siebel in, uh, I think they were in a mental hospital actually, and they had multiple personalities. So they believed that they were multiple people. So a Siebel attack is where you have one person that pretends to be multiple people in the network. Uh, so this is an attack that the Tor network is vulnerable to because the government, for example, or a third party can pretend to be lots of these nodes that... Um, in in between you and your connection and the thing is if they own all of these nodes then you're not actually hopping through lots of connections you're hopping through all connections that they own which means it's essentially like you're just connecting directly to the server on the other side so to prevent that attack we have each node uh, hold a certain amount of loki um, so this means that there's only a certain amount of loki currently um, in the whole of the supply um, and currently there's 40% of the whole of the Loki supply is in these nodes. So if someone comes along and they try and buy lots of nodes or, um, you know, they, uh, they want to buy lots of the network, then they have to buy more and more of the supply. And that becomes more difficult as the supply gets lower and lower. Um, so this is how this is kind of related back to your connection. Uh, your question, which was, does it get harder the more uh, time goes on? Well, it gets harder to operate one of these nodes, or financially harder at least, uh, the more nodes there are. Have you, so the incentive, oh, sorry, let me put it this way. What's the incentive for a person to have the node? So they get a percentage of the block reward. So they get paid in Loki. So every time a block is created, and this is an entirely different thing. You know how in, in Bitcoin, we have transactions that are included in blocks. Loki also has this because you can send money in Loki. Um, each time a block is created, a certain percentage goes to one of these service nodes. Um, and that happens over and over again. We select a random service node every time. Um, and the, it gets a little bit of a financial reward. So they are getting paid in Loki uh, to operate this routing service because obviously routing data across the internet isn't free. 
And then once I've got my Loki, can I buy something with it or can I convert it into another currency? Yeah, so uh, Loki is tradable on a number of exchanges. So you could sell it for Bitcoin and then sell that Bitcoin into US dollars. There's also, uh, uh, we're starting to integrate some uh, VPS providers as well. So if you run a node, then you can pay for your node in Loki itself. Uh, so we're trying to build kind of an ecosystem where you can actually use Loki to pay for things, or you know you always have the option of converting it back into fiat currency if that's how you want to do things. I remember reading something about the Tor network in the past that the, the people who were volunteering became known egress points. So then governments started watching those computers. So you were fine all the way till you got to the last top, and then that last top was being watched. And it wasn't necessarily that they know who you were, but they would know what was being looked at. Have you got any weakness like that? So this is a problem with guard nodes in particular. So a guard node is the first hop that you access when you hit in, go into the overlay network. So although they can watch the first hop, they can't actually... Well, if, if the guard node is relaying enough traffic in Tor and Loki, they shouldn't be able to know the connection between the guard node and the person. They can know that you are connecting to the Tor network or the Loki network itself. But unless they're monitoring the whole internet, which they are to a certain extent, um, as long as there's enough traffic going through all of these nodes, it will be very, very difficult for them to tell, oh, okay, this guard node is communicating with this next node in the route. That has to be keys traffic. Because this guard node is communicating with thousands of other nodes in the network, it's very hard for them to specifically say, okay, this guard node is communicating with this node, and then this node is communicating with this node, and that node is communicating with the server. And we know all of those are keys, actual communications. That's very tricky. What state is your network in now? Have you got enough nodes uh, to provide to communi uh, me, secure communication and the like? So right now we only have uh, 340 nodes last time I checked. Um, Loki actually has an interesting property where uh, the staking requirement gets lower over time. So the node count should increase over time as well. We planned it like this because we knew that we weren't going to release the mixnet um, part of it or the overlay network part of it immediately. Uh, we knew that we would have some time to develop a larger node network. So hopefully when we launch uh, fully LokiNet, maybe it'll be sometime next year, maybe mid next year, um, we will be will be having a lot larger of a node network. Um, so obviously the more nodes you have in this network, the safer it is because the less uh, fault tolerant or the more fault tolerant the network is if you have 1,000 nodes compared to 300. There's no real... Uh, points at which anyone knows a network becomes like decentralized or not. Maybe we're already decentralized at 350 nodes. I guess some people would say that we are. Some people would say we're not. Um, that's an interesting question to, to throw up in the air. Um, but hopefully by mid next year, we'll we'll be pushing you know six, seven hundred nodes, maybe even a thousand, depending on how things go. And then clients, how many users would you say you have? Users right now mm -hmm. it would be very minimal. There's not that many users using uh, the MixNet right now because it's not fully integrated into the service nodes, which are actually these nodes that run in the middle. Um, we're still at a quite early stage. So we have a lot of the design ready and we have like a kind of small toy testing network, uh, but we're really working on stability on that toy network right now. Um, and then we'll really deploy it to the larger uh, side of things. Is your source code uh, open and available to be looked at? 
Yeah, so everything uh, Loki writes is open source. So we have a GitHub page um, that you can check out. Just type in uh, Loki Network GitHub and you'll be able to view the source about all of our code. It's all uh, either MIT or GPL uh, 3+. Plus, so if you want to copy it and use it in your own projects, you're uh, more than welcome to. Uh, just with the GPL uh, 3 stuff, you can't use it in a closed source project if, if you want to do that. So um, yeah, we're, we, we always... With any cryptocurrency uh, platform or uh, overlay network, you always want to have the code open source because if it's closed source, users don't actually know what they're running. They don't actually know if it's giving them any anonymity. Uh, they need to be able to audit the code themselves. So, Given that you rely on nodes run by random individuals, how can you know they haven't, let's say, messed with the code in some way? They can. Uh, they can definitely mess with the code. The thing is, we have designed it in such a way that the incentives should align economically at least for the most profitable thing to do is actually to honestly route data. Uh, so they can mess with their code and, and not route data, but that means that the rest of the nodes in the network, they kind of self-police each other. Uh, so if someone's not routing any data, then they'll be kicked off the network and they won't receive a reward for what they're doing. Uh, and their uh, their Loki, the, the Loki I told you about before that they lock, that actually gets locked for a certain period of time for which they aren't earning rewards on. So there's actually a punishment for bad behavior. Um, so that's the best way we have to enforce code. We can't actually you know, uh, prevent people from modifying the inputs and outputs. We just want to make the uh, economics work in such a way that it's economically decentralized to, to modify your uh, software. There's something, again, this is going back to my ignorance in blockchain, what if at some point there is some unknown security weakness that's discovered in blockchain and all of a sudden the whole transaction history of, let's say, the Bitcoin blockchain is readable? Uh, would you also be susceptible because you're using a blockchain? So there already the whole Bitcoin blockchain is entirely readable. So um, that's already the case there. Uh, if there was, so there's kind of two types of security bugs. There could be a security bug that caused um, inflation. So uh, someone finds a bug that's able to produce millions and millions of uh, Loki or Bitcoin, and that inflates the supply, um, which makes the underlying currency worthless. Um, and then there's like maybe a privacy bug, which would be if there's a ledger which claims to be private. Um, and there's maybe a break in the cryptography or someone implemented something wrong, uh, then there would be this case where maybe the, the transactions that happened before would be uh, you know, not obfuscated anymore, at least not obfuscated to the level that, that was claimed originally. So with the first one, or with both of them, there's always this case where you can hard fork. So a hard fork is like a, a change that would uh, modify the consensus rules. So um, if we find a massive security bug, then uh, we can hard fork and we can release a new version which doesn't have this security bug and everyone will move to the newer version and perhaps there'll be some you know, economic uh, fallout. Maybe there are some coins lost on the old uh, chain that was available, but uh, generally this new uh, version will, will be um, more secure or have the security properties. Uh, that the old version had as well. Um, you do bring up an interesting point about the privacy aspect of things though, which is like, yeah, can people's transactions be lost or to, uh, can people's privacy be removed? This is an interesting question because it really depends on the uh, technology that you're using to provide anonymity. So for example, um, if there was a break in, well, they, they, 
like they each have different security properties. So Monero has this thing called uh, stealth addresses. So essentially what happens is you do a Diffie-Hellman key exchange and then you send uh, to an address which is associated with their key but not directly associated with their key. So the security property here is that if you break um, EED uh, CSA or uh, I always forget, uh, if you break elliptic curve uh, signatures, then this uh, this security method is is not going to be good. It's going to be broken. But then again, if you break uh, if you break this digital signature algorithms, then the whole internet is also fucked as well. So, you know, this security model is considered very strong. Like the ring signature model, which is also used in Monero, is maybe much weaker than this. Uh, but you always have these fallbacks. So self address is a very a very strong scheme that you can use. Um, that even if ring signature signatures break, you still have the stealth address model. Um, and there's even stronger ones like zero knowledge proofs, for example, uh, which are being talked about a lot. Uh, these actually have the property that even if you were to break uh, some of the cryptography involved, there's still no knowledge actually there in the blockchain for you to you know, recreate the privacy or uh, remove the privacy of transactions. So the question is difficult to answer. It really depends on what security features you're using. Some of them have very strong properties, like stealth addresses, for example. Some of them have weaker ones, um, but you can always have these fallbacks in place. I presume, as you said, you know, your plan is to get to having a phone application for people. But you know, the likes of the releases from Snowden and others have shown that a lot of the phones have backdoors or are very easily hackable. So what's the benefit of having a Loki or even in the case of a Signal, a Telegram, a WhatsApp, if the device that it's running on has uh, easily broken security? Yeah, I mean, you always, ha you always have to operate in uh, a world of uh, not knowing what hardware people are operating on. There have been some advances in kind of, uh, you know, uh, trusted security modules in phones now that uh, maybe have better security properties than uh, than the phone themselves and are isolated from the phone's operating system. Loki isn't trying to solve the hardware issue itself. Um, it's a very difficult issue and, and we'll leave that up to other people. You do raise a good point though um, and I don't really know what the solution is. There's always going to be software running on top of hardware, and there's always going to be hardware manufacturers who are cooperating with governments or private corporations that will insert this kind of stuff. Um, you just have to write the best software possible and, and try not to rely on the hardware too much. Um, but yeah, that, that's, always, uh, that's always a thing. Like uh, People have to trust their own hardware. Uh, otherwise, they're kind of screwed from, from day one with any of these software. Well, it is getting tougher because we had the huge supply chain injection story broken by Bloomberg a few months ago. Um, where that's going to go is hard to say. Yeah. How do you support development within Loki? I mean, financially. So like, you've got obviously developers, an office, um, and whatever else you need. Yeah, so uh, Loki actually did what's called a pre-mine. So we uh, took 15% of the supply before the currency was released and we pre-mined that uh, and we sold a portion of it to uh, private investors. So from that, we raised about uh, $12 million Australian dollars. Um, and from that, we've probably got nearly two to three years uh, of runway to go, which is a lot of time in the blockchain world. Um, 
The Loki Foundation also takes a percentage of the Loki block reward, which is 5%. So when eventually that um, money from the the private sale runs out, we'll be able to hopefully operate off uh, a percentage of the block reward. Um, there's a lot of uh, elements in the Loki governance system as well. So uh, service nodes themselves, this network of nodes that are in the middle that I told you about before, they can actually vote on proposals. Um, they get a portion of the block award to distribute uh, amongst themselves to projects that they see fit. Uh, so it's not just the foundation, um, which is a board of uh, members who, who decide the direction of the Loki project. There's also the service nodes who get a say in where the project goes as well. Um, so we've got a lot of developments coming up with the foundation um, and the Loki service nodes themselves. So we'll hope, ho we hope to be like a lot more clear and transparent about this. If you want to know more about the foundation, you can visit uh, Loki.foundation. Loki you can check out who's on the board um, and how those members get elected and what our status is and all of that kind of stuff. So going to turn away a little bit from the technical side of things. I'm, I'm sure it'll come back in, but there are problems with, let's say, hidden transactions, hidden messages, or at least there are perceived problems because you would obviously have the issue of money laundering, uh, black market sales, payment for illicit uh, products and the like. How do you address those? It's, a, it's an interesting question. And I think you'll find from the most cursory analysis of most, uh, you know, anonymous cash systems. The the easiest one uh, to find is probably the US dollar, for example. Um, you'll find that the majority of the use for these, uh, if we're going to go from a, a completely util utilitarian philosophical view, uh, a, a majority of the use of these anonymous systems is for particularly benign reasons. So it's not for money laundering or some secret, you know, gambling ring. It's just for people paying for their groceries, for example. So I don't think it's fair to say we're going to marginalize this group of, you know, 5% of people or 2% of people that use this anonymous or this anonymity for uh, bad things. I think it's better in a utilitarian way to actually look at the majority of users who are just using uh, the, the system for, you know, the most benign of everyday uh, transactions. Uh, and you see this even with the Tor network. People have this idea that the Tor network is used for all of these, you know, nasty things, you know, they're they're trading drugs on there and all of this stuff. And when you even look at the Tor network for, you know, a couple of seconds, you'll see that actually 98% of the traffic is going to the regular internet. They're not even on this dark web layer or anything. They're just visiting normal websites like Facebook, Google, YouTube. So, you know, there is a legitimate question for, you know, having anonymity systems, but I think it really pales in comparison when you actually look at the statistics around who's using this. But then the argument could easily be made that there are more open systems like the international banking system for making those transfers, PayPal, Venmo, um, where you're probably not... Uh, going to be accused of any of the things the likes of these applications get accused of. Right, but you've still got to understand that you know the international banking system also gets used for a massive amount of money laundering, terrorist funding, all of this kind of stuff. So they, they run bank accounts for essentially drug dealers. Um, no one really bats an eye and they get, you know, they get a big fine and everything. 
but the thing is like these these companies or well not even companies they're usually non-for-profits like tor they don't really have big pr funds to to kind of uh you know, uh, stop people from, you know, abusing their name. But when Tor gets used by some, you know, drug dealer, then it's everyone piles on essentially. So it's hard to see because we see everything through the media's eyes and we're always hearing about, oh, the Tor, Tor, it's used for Darknet. But, you know, you have to look at the statistics in this case. Uh, You know, the majority of Tor users are just using it to access the internet from countries that have oppressive regimes. it's an interesting question, and I think a lot of these questions come from like looking through the media's eyes at things. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's important to understand what these things are actually being used for by the majority of users. I think there's also an element of the novelty, the newness, but and also the the lack of control that potentially governments have over these now. So, but there is one other one uh, related to this I wanted to ask you as well. We have seen in some countries like Mexico, India, Myanmar, Sri Lanka, and a bunch of others where tools like WhatsApp have been used to spread rumors of things like child abductors, which have directly led to the murder of many people. Um, and when police come to investigate these things, they're hitting a brick wall because of the encryption of the likes of WhatsApp. And I assume Loki will face this kind of question at some point too. Mm. I mean, police, even though encryption makes things uh, difficult for uh, police to track actual messages happening, it doesn't stop police from being able to do groundwork. You know, things still need to happen in the physical world eventually. So if someone gets murdered by someone else, there's still this physical link, right? And that's where I think police work should be moving towards and not this whole like blanket surveillance on every single person in the entire world. Um, You do have an interesting point, but the, the counterpoint is, you know, how much media, like how much has the media itself caused outrage uh, to stir up these kind of massive, uh, you know, things that that people get killed on all the time. The media is always making this this kind of outrage politics and, um, you know, putting pitting people against other people. I think that's just what the media does. I don't think that's about the uh, platform itself. It might make the, you know, the investigation part harder, but there's always going to be people who are outraged and, you know, who are pinning people on other people. I, I don't think that's a problem with new technology. I think there should be there should be new police methods or not new police methods, but perhaps we're going back to the older times where there was actually this person to person communication that the police had. Um, I think that's really broken down and, and they keep going on the authoritarian route, which is just, okay, we need more and more control. They're not actually stepping back and saying, Oh, okay. Like we, how are we doing things in the past? Maybe we should go back and look at those where we had better relationships with people and we had, um, you know, informants or just people on the street that would talk to us in general. Um, there's now this us and them mentality between the police and the citizens, I think. Australia, uh, in some ways, it's being said to lead the way in laws trying to deal with encryption. Uh, I think your government recently passed uh, a law requiring companies like yours to hand over encrypted messages and keys. Can you tell me a little bit about the law and then your reaction to it? Yeah, so the law is called the Assistance and Access Bill. Um, it was just passed a couple of, or it would have been a couple of weeks ago now when it was passed. So it's an interesting bill. It doesn't do exactly what you're saying, which is um, force companies to give over keys. 
the more worrying thing that it actually does is it forces companies to uh, potentially put back doors in their software. So if you don't have, uh, so Loki, for example, doesn't have the ability to, you know, uh, take take away any uh, like there's no split key system in loki you have your encryption key and you encrypt your your data and you send that to the person you're contacting so loki the company itself has no way to intervene with that the thing is we also release the software that most people use so the request that would come from the government to us would be to install a backdoor in our software um, now, this is very serious for companies that have a closed source, uh, you know, distribution method because you can place a backdoor in and no one will know about it. They'll just download your software and they'll run it, believing that it'll that it's going to be safe. Whereas Loki has to publish all of its code open source before it gets published. So there's a big um, there's a big area in which uh, you can actually catch a weakness in there. Now, there's that might not seem the safest protection and we don't think that that's actually the part that they're going to use against Loki or that they could use against an Australian company. We think it much more likely that what they would actually do is they would ask us to develop an alternative client implementation, and then they would distribute that to a specific person. So then we would not actually need to upload our code to, to GitHub um, and everyone, everyone can see our code is normal on GitHub and everything's okay um, because it is. But the thing is, they would actually man in the middle someone and give them a, an alternative, uh, an alternative uh, program to actually run. So although they think oh, I'm running the open source code from GitHub, uh, they'd actually be running a, a modified client version. Now, there's a lot of technical protections that you can do against this. So one is reprodu reproducible builds. So when I have software on GitHub and I build it, uh, it's going to give me an output, which is like a hash. Um, right now, everyone gets a different hash when they build the source code. So we want to make it so that you always know that what you are running on your end is the code that's on GitHub. So that's one way to do it through reproducible builds. Um, and then there's also this idea of like signing binaries as well. So if we have a hash produced at the end when someone builds software, um, they can be sure that, that hash was actually released by the Loki, or Loki Foundation or the Loki developers themselves. So we think we have a pretty good way to mitigate this. We think we're a lot uh, more protected against this type of surveillance than uh, some closed source applications. Um, but it's still quite unclear how this le legislation actually applies. They have this term, which is called a systemic weakness that you're not able to introduce or not allowed to introduce uh, from the bill. It's unclear really what a systemic weakness is. It seems like it would be a weakness that exposes all of the users as a collective. So it seems to prevent stuff like blanket surveillance, and it seems to be more um, tuned towards targeted surveillance. So if they wanted to actually target a specific user. Um, so, but as I said, like there's, there's protections that we can put in place so that that user, even if they were targeted, they could know that they're not running official software because it wouldn't produce the same, uh, the same hashes that we uploaded to GitHub itself. Uh, so yeah, we're always looking for protections against this stuff. It's an interesting bill. We don't actually think it'll affect Loki that much because of the protections that we've put in place. But if, let's say, the government comes along to you and says, we do want to target John Smith over there, can they compel you to assist them, even though you may say it will be apparent to that person? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But then yes. 
can they not come along and say to you, make it so it's not apparent to that person also, even though you might say, we we don't know how, if they could suggest a way, are you obliged to now go along with their suggestion? We're, we are obliged to do kind of whatever they ask in that scenario, but we can't introduce a systemic weakness. So if we were to remove the reproducible, so the only way to get around this would be to remove the reproducible builds, for example. Uh, so the person on the other end wouldn't be able to know that the binaries that they're running are different from the ones on GitHub. Uh, and removing that in itself would be a systemic weakness. So we can't actually do anything that would be defined as a systemic weakness, which is a this kind of blanket uh, weakness that's introduced. Um, so it would be very difficult for us to do something like that. So it kind of sounds like the law that could force you to do something is also protecting you from doing something. Yeah, the way. law. Yeah, the law was written. It, I. It's a very haphazard law. It doesn't really do what I think they think it does, um, or they think I. I think they want it to do. I think what this is going to be is it's going to be like a something that they introduce and then they broaden the scope of gradually. Um, but by the time that they broaden the scope, I hope that the Loki, the Loki team, as it is currently, is a centralized team that works on the Loki source code. I hope that we're no longer around, and I don't think we will be around uh, long enough for them to be able to broaden the scope infinitely to encompass the Loki team and say, okay, you have to develop this software thing. The reality is, because the code is open source, the government can just come along and develop that client implementation by themselves. They don't need our help in whatsoever, right? They can just, you know, develop a client implementation and target that specific user um, and man in the middle of them. They can already do that. Um, that's why we're introducing these changes to reproducible builds. So we have this protection in between. I, in, in the interest of sort of, let's say, a fairness, in the past two gentlemen I had on from the previous encryption companies, I did put the question to them, if facing uh, law, court order, being compelled, do you see yourself refusing or complying or going to jail or not? That's hard to say without no. knowing what they're asking for. No, that's absolutely fine. Any final notes before we wrap up for the day, Key? Uh, thanks so much for having me, Brian. Uh, the final kind of things I wanted to say is uh, you can visit our website at loki.network. Um, to find more information. We have a whole white paper up there. It's 24 pages. So if you want to know about more of the technical details, you can go and read that. We also have a YouTube channel. Um, just look up Loki Network in the YouTube search bar and you run into a couple of videos which explain kind of what we're doing in a more visual way. A lot of the time when I was talking to Brian, I was actually drawing things on the table here. So um, it's actually probably a bit better to actually look at some diagrams of this stuff if you're still going like, well, what the hell is this? Um, but yeah, that's kind of it. I'll put up the links to those. And I have watched some of the videos on YouTube and it is very helpful. And, and there were very good audience questions as well, I noticed on that. Well, yeah. Key Jeffries, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks so much, Brian. If you like this episode, you might also like episode 107 with Niall Merrigan on hacking, bug bounties and responsible disclosure, or episode 88 with Aaron Bedra on threat modeling, or episode 15 with Linus Olsen on the Hemless Project.
The opening music was returned by Nisi23 from the album 11 and 12, and the closing music was We Were Never Meant to Live Here by Chris Zabrinski from the album Music from Neptune Flux. <laughs> 